The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Much better. So, good morning, everyone. I'm sorry I was not here last week. I was quite ill. I had the flu <laughs> uh, with complications. <laughs> but I'm here this morning and very grateful to be here. So uh, I'm also grateful to Xinguan for stepping in for me for, at the last minute. That was, she was asked on Monday to come on Tuesday. So that was great. So I hope that you found her talk on suffering worthwhile also. So welcome to the third class in a series on the three characteristics of existence. The three characteristics that we see described as impermanence, suffering, and not-self. Impermanence, suffering, and not-self. Now, a really important thing about these is to realize that none of these are things. They have this in common. Impermanence is not a thing. Impermanence is the arising, the being, and the passing away. The arising, the being, and the passing away. It is a process. It isn't a thing, impermanence. It's not a place we go. It's not a thing we achieve. It's not something we can find. It is describing a process, impermanence. The same is true of suffering. Suffering is also not a thing. It may seem like a thing. It may seem like something sitting here in the middle of the room, but actually... Suffering is more about our reaction to what we see. We want it, we don't want it, we want it to be different. It's a process. It isn't a thing. It arises out of our relationship to what's happening. What's happening? I like it, I don't like it, I want it, I don't want it. This is suffering. Wanting things to be different than they are. The same is true of not-self. We very often get confused about not-self, and we want to make it into no-self. And then we say, that can't be true. (laughs) But actually, anatta, the word anatta in Pali describes what we call not-self. And it, the, the prefix, the an, means not. And the atta, atta refers to something in Pali that has to do with a, a concrete core, unchanging, unarising, unpassing away, unchanging thing. So anatta is not-self, not core unchanging thing. It isn't about self or not, no self. It's not about self or no self. Those are things. What we're really talking about here is a process. That's, a, that's an important idea to kind of keep in mind. That it, it may seem like a trivial difference, but it's all the difference in the world. We're not trying to define what the self is, But we are talking about what it is not. What it is not. 
it is not so so some some 40 years ago i read my first book on 40 plus years ago it's getting longer uh, good this is good news that it's getting longer um, i read my first book on buddhism and i was really taken with uh, what I saw as the philosophical basis of Buddhism. And then I ran into no self, and I said, stop. Now, I I was in my early 20s, and nobody was going to tell me there was no self. I wasn't sure who I was, but I was pretty sure I was something. And I just walked away from it. I said, no, I can't go there. But it was because I got hung up on that translation that what they were saying is there were no self. I mean, here's this body sitting here. There's a being here. There's a being there and there and there and there and there. You're all beings. It isn't that, that we're saying they're not, you're not here. You are here. The trick is, who are you? How are you? What are you? When are you? Anatta arises out of direct experience, and primarily a place to see it is in mindfulness. It's really in paying attention to what's happening. What's happening here? What's happening here? Not what am I, what am I finding, this, this object that I found, but what's happening and what is my reaction to what's happening? What is the physical experience of what's happening? What is my feeling about it? I like it. I don't like it. I'm neutral about it. What's my reaction to what's happening? What are my ideas about it? Oh, this is this. I recognize this. I know what this is. The ideas about it. And then there's the thinking about it. Well, if it were just a little bit different, and you know, what it really means is, we get hung up on this, what's actually happening must mean something. And so we decide what it means. And all of this is in the context of being aware of it, right? We're aware this is happening. Here's what's happening, and I know it's happening. And then we take this accumulation of experience of ways of experiencing it and we build it into something and we say this is me I am a person who reacts this way in this condition forgetting all about the fact there are all these different conditions happening and when those conditions change I am has to be someone else because the conditions are different What's happening is different. It is the process of uncovering what we see in what's happening that is what we refer to as not-self. This is what's happening in this moment. It is not-self. Now, I could tell you this all day. I could sit here and repeat this a 100,000 times. And it would still not have any meaning for you if you don't have the experience of it. If you don't actually see it for yourself and say, oh, I get it, I see, this is what's happening here. This is, this is only happening because these conditions have come together. So, 
So let's see if we can kind of look at that. The, the Buddha did not say there is no self, nor did he say there is self. He said, this is not a profitable thing to investigate. What is a profitable thing to investigate is what is my reaction to all of this? What is the process of this? Worrying about the nature of self, the nature of universe. He said, this is all well and good, but what is your experience of thinking about all these things? If you're worried about who am I, and you are busy trying to create the person you want to be, there's a lot of effort going into that, folks. Who I am. I have to work really hard to be who I am in an ideal way. You know, well, I have to dress a certain way. I have to live in a certain place. I have to have a certain attitude about things. And I, have to be, I want to be a compassionate person, so I have to be compassionate at all times. This is a lot of stuff to keep in mind all the time. And of course, we don't keep it in mind all the time because it's not possible. We kind of have this idea that who we are is, is fixed somehow. And it's, it's kind of comfortable. You know, if I know who I am, then I'm, I'm, I'm confident, right? I'm comfortable in myself. And I don't need to worry about what's coming next. Or do I? Or do I? So, the way we hold ourselves, the things we try to avoid, the things we try to project, all of that is process. And it's mental. It's mental formations. Mental. This is how I am. I am angry. Well, at least in this moment, under these conditions, and, you know, somebody just cut me off on the road, and now I'm angry. Oh, so, so the temporal nature of it, the fact that it arises and passes away, that's very interesting. This is something you can all notice. Every time you hear yourself saying, I am... Notice that it is something that is temporary. It's actually temporary, and it arose in this moment because of these conditions. Don't believe me. Try it. Just try it. Try it. What does it mean? What is it about you that seems continuous and unchanging? And ask yourself, is it always true? We all have things about ourselves that we consider pretty continuous. You know, simple things like, I'm a woman. Well, you know, my physical body says I'm a woman. There are other aspects of being a woman. My mental body the way I think, the way I perceive, the way I act. Typically, we think aggressiveness is a male characteristic. I can assure you, I can be very aggressive. Am I woman or am I man? 
Where do I get this idea of what a woman is? Oh, that's interesting. I've learned this idea of what a woman is. A woman is a being who walks on two legs. She has certain physical characteristics. She behaves in certain ways. She's a social creature. We refer to her with female pronouns. All of this is learned. All of this is mental. It doesn't mean that by my being able to say, this aspect of me is very feminine and this aspect of me is male, makes me any less of a physical woman who typically reacts in a certain way. It just means that I am not so limited by what I'm calling a woman that I can't be whatever needs to be in this moment. The views that we hold based on what we have learned can limit us in our experience of this moment. Right here, this one. So I have some friends who uh, were speaking to me of what they see as a cultural perspective on managing change. A cultural perspective on managing change. These people, this is a, a couple who lived through a civil war. And that experience has marked them in very significant ways. And they believe that they are people who are restless and cautious and somewhat indecisive. And that this may arise out of the fear that if I make the wrong choice, it is my survival at stake. Walking down this street rather than that street might make the difference between whether I am hit by a sniper bullet or not. Now, enough of that is going to turn you into a very cautious, indecisive person. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. In the conditions of civil war, which street you walk down makes a lot of difference to survival. Today, walking down Redwood in Redwood City, if I walk down Birch or Hopkins, probably, probably is not going to make a difference on my survival. But if I'm in the habit of, of just uh, cringing every time I have to make a choice about a street... I don't notice that it's a habit of mind. I don't notice that it's a habit of my mental track to be cautious. It's a habit. I reminded my friends that they are not their history They are not their history. You are not your history. Whether you had parents who reinforced a sense of safety for you or seemed to constantly be ripping the rug out from under you may have a lot to do with how secure you feel in the world. But it is not 
you. And they are not here right now doing either of those things. And the conditions have changed. And it's only the mindset that thinks the conditions haven't changed. The attempt to be safe. The attempt to be happy. The attempt to be well-loved. The attempt to be liked. If I do this, everyone will like me. Is it called for in the conditions of this moment? This is not who you are. This is a habit of mind. It is not your history. You are not your history. You are not it. Not self. Anatta. We can look at my friends and say, oh, you know. In fact, I, what I said to them is, my experience of you is not what you described to me. My experience of you is that you are creative, delightful people. You are generous. You are wholesome. You are living a charmed life. They shook their heads. And then they told me a story about a friend of theirs who had lived a very, uh, very difficult childhood. His mother had killed him herself when she, he was very young. And uh, lots of misfortune in his life. Lots of misfortune. And he has grown up to be this very creative, charming person, uh, well-known writer, highly accomplished, very happy, And they say, how did this happen? And I don't know the answer. But somewhere there is the suffering that arises out of deciding this is who I am and I can be no other way. This is who I am and it determines me. And that's not true. That's not true. The Buddha described Anatta, in terms of the five aggregates, which we just skipped over pretty quickly, the physical reality of what's happening, the feeling tone, I like this, I don't like this, I'm neutral, the perception, this is table, this is body, perception, thinking, Here's what I'm thinking about. Here's where I assign meaning. This is, what, this is what this means. And consciousness, this is what I'm aware of. Those are the five aggregates. And we're going to talk more about those uh, probably next week. But this is how he talked about not-self. To realize that these ways of experiencing what happens, these ways of experiencing what happens, are what constitutes how we build up self, how we say, this is who I am. I am a person who. Okay, so so how do we see this? How do we look at this in a way that makes sense? So there is a, there's there's another Pali term called nama rupa. And nama rupa is about mind and physicality. Mind and physicality, the meeting of mind and physicality. So 
Uh, and it, if, if you think of mindfulness of postures, you can see this. So let's say, what, what are the postures? We can walk, we can sit, we can lie down, we can stand. These are postures. These are the kinds of postures I'm talking about. So as we're walking, we notice that we're walking. Now, what do, what's really happening when we're walking? So when I'm walking, I'm going to lift my leg, my leg. Oh, this is my leg. Now, exactly what is leg? What does leg mean? Oh, is my leg the same as your leg? And how do I know it's a leg? Leg is an idea. It's this, this combination of things that runs from my hip down to my foot. Let's not get too lost on what those things are. Here's this leg, and this leg is integral to my walking. It's part of my walking. Now, there was a time when I was on retreat, and I was having a hard time settling. I was very restless, and I couldn't get myself to stay on the breath. So I decided I would do walking meditation because it would burn off some of that excess energy, right? I couldn't stay on the walking meditation either, so I said, all right, I'm going to notice, I have the intention of walking, and I'm going to notice the physical place where I first notice walking. Now, at this time, in this place, as it turns out, what I noticed was a muscle in my lower thigh that I could feel that movement in my leg. That was going to be the first thing that I noticed after the intention of moving my leg. Wow. There was a lot happening between the intention in my mind and the twitching muscle in my leg. Can you imagine all the things that happened? All of those things happened with no control by me. This leg moved based on the intention in my mind, and the first thing I noticed was a twitch of the muscle in this leg. I had no control over any of that. If this is my leg, I should be able to control everything about it. But frankly, if I had to control all the muscles between my brain and that, it probably, you know, I'd not be able to do anything else with the rest of my life. And yet I call it my leg. What makes it my leg? It happens to be part of this body, which I think is my body. I can tell you if I had control over this body, I would not fall down. That hurts to fall down. And if I had control, I wouldn't do it. But the truth is, I actually don't have control over my body. We do lots of things to build up the health of our bodies, our ability to move through the, the world safely. But we actually don't get to control it. We don't own it. We don't get to control it. The other night when I was sick, I told you there were complications. It turns out I lost consciousness. And I picked myself up off the floor. I woke up on the floor. And um, that was interesting. I have no idea what happened. I can tell you physiologically I probably was dehydrated. right? But I don't know what happened. I just woke up on the floor. There was no awareness of what happened in that space. 
but my body went from upright to being down on the floor somehow. I had no control over any of that. Not only did I not have control about, over it, I was unaware of it. It happened without me. Where was me? What happened? The physicality of being in this body and knowing you're in this body, liking it, not liking it, all of this is the experience, and none of it is me. None of it. It is not self. It just is there. These things. Now, sitting here right now, I'm aware of sitting here. I'm very aware of how I got here. I have a memory of that. And I'm aware that I'm sitting here and what it feels like to sit here. Because the experience now is the physical experience, the perception. I, can, I know I'm sitting. It's what I call sitting. Whether I like it or dislike it or am neutral about it is up to me to decide and for you to figure out. No. <laughs> These are the things that come together that define the experience, but it has nothing to do with me. Just what's happening right now. This is what we mean by not self. Now, it seems kind of trivial when we just talk about the posture, but it is in looking at the posture that we can see it. We can see this principle of not-self. This is a coming together of being aware of and an object, the object being this body. And I am aware of this body, so it's sitting. But it is not me. It is just this body sitting here at this time in this place, sitting this way. But it's not me. We don't control what happens even if we set it in motion by our intention. Now, intention is important because it directs directs our physical body. It just doesn't determine what happens. I may decide to walk downstairs, but I have no control of the fact that my knee collapses and I fall. I don't have control over that. In the future, I might always walk with a handrail (laughs) in an attempt to control the outcome. None of this is me. This is just what's happening. I'm mentioning all the physical things because it's easier to look there than to look in some of the more complex ways that we create ourselves and the ways that we come together and talk about who we are and what this means. It's a place to look. And one of the things we notice is impermanence, the arising and passing away. So I have a thought. I have a thought that I am... um, I'm happy. I have the thought that I'm happy. What does this mean to say, I am happy? There's an elation that I'm feeling in my body. There's an elation in this body, and and it's something I like. I like this. And so I call it happiness. The idea of happiness. It doesn't have that much to do with 
a self. It doesn't have that much to do with me as a self. It just means that under these conditions of sitting here, this bubbliness comes up and I call this happiness. And I say, oh, happiness. Well, now that I know what happiness is, I can be happy all the time, right? No, I don't get to choose the conditions. I actually don't get to choose the conditions. But I can choose, I can choose not to decide in advance what's true, of not holding a view that I can only be happy under these conditions, and therefore I'm going to set up these conditions all the time so that I can be happy all the time. Not possible. Not possible. If I only had this, if I could arrange things this way, I would be happy because I know what makes me happy. Really. Really. Is that true? We get very used to an image. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror and I say, This is Maria. And I say, oh, hi, Maria, I see you. Uh-huh. And then I notice I have these little wrinkles. And we all carry around an image in our minds of who we are. And, you know, sometimes people will say, I'm actually much younger than I look. Or I actually look younger than I am. I think I was middle-aged at age 20. <laughs> Definitely middle-aged at age 20. And then I went through being a teenager. It was not a pretty picture. All of these are mental ideas of who we are. But we can become very attached to them. So one of the things that is is very striking is when you look in the mirror, you're actually looking at something about you. And you identify with that thing. And you say, so maybe it's your smile. You look in the mirror, you see your smile, and all is well with the world. And then you have a picture, the same moment, And you say, wow, who is that? Because you get the whole thing. You don't just get the smile. You have to look at the whole thing. There's the whole body, there's the posture, and maybe you're kind of slumped and smiling. Who knows? But the image that you take away from that is very different. We carry these images around in our heads, and we call them me. Me. I am this. So, So the other day... Uh, a consequence of falling was the, that I probably had a minor concussion. I've had a CAT scan, so I know there's, you know, nothing's out of place, nothing's really damaged. But, but I was dizzy for several days, and I was trying to meditate, and I couldn't, I couldn't hold my attention. I, mean, I, I just couldn't do that. And then I took a deep breath. Oh, this spaciousness. And then I was in this very spacious place, and I said, oh, yeah. This is great. Wow. Yeah, really. Oh, oh, this is Maria spacing out. Maria is not alert. This is not mindful spaciousness. This is escape. (laughs) This is pretending (laughs) to be concentrated. I was getting confused between liking the peacefulness of that vague place and confusing it with the peace that comes from alert calmness. The feeling in the body was pretty similar, but the knowing was very different. 
And I said, oh, you're actually either spacing out or restless, and this doesn't feel like me. This doesn't feel right. Oh, I have an image of me that says that I don't space out and I'm not restless. Oh, that's interesting. That's a source of suffering. The difference between how I see myself and what's actually happening. As soon as I went back to, this is what's happening, then all sorts of other things arose. Fear, oh no, I'll never be able to concentrate again. Or, you know, and then I realized this is fantasy. It was very active, very active, this not being myself not being the person that I was familiar with, the person that I was in the habit of being. Very interesting, very interesting. You are not who you think you are. Think about that. You're not who you think you are. We have these mental views of who we are, what happens when you say, who am I? Who am I? I once did this for a month-long retreat. This was my mantra. Who am I? Who am I? The first questions are pretty easy. You come up with, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a wife, I'm a teacher, I'm a whatever it is, you know. I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a... Whatever you come up with. I'm a people mover, I'm a people convincer. And the longer you ask this question, who am I? Oh, you start hearing, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm different. I'm unconventional. I'm very conventional. And you come to see how much of your mental life goes to forming this idea of who you are. And the truth is, you're very, very different depending on what the conditions are that come together. The conditions of the moment. What's happening? And the creating of self, the idea of who self is, is a reaction to what's happening. Oh. When we can really see this, we can become free of the limits of who we think we are or who we think we need to be or the limits of who we used to be. I'm somebody who who used to be very identified with what I did for a living. I felt very competent, very... uh, uh, very successful, uh, very much in control of my life, and I was running 100 miles an hour to make that true. And then I lost my job, and I did not have a clue who I was. It was, it was failure to be who I was. Shocking to me stunning to realize how much of how I saw myself was tied up with what I did for a living. Wow. 
And I've spent most of my life since then trying to unwind all the things that I think about myself as being me. Or to unwind that tendency to want to be something. To want to be a great meditator. To want to be a great teacher. To want to be the world's best grandmother. I see that tendency to want to be and I see the freedom in just being in response to this, this moment. Who am I in this moment? And how much easier that is than maintaining all those views and those directions and those intentions of who I should be or might be or could be or have to be. I'm kind of going down here. I have all these things that I I thought about talking about. I'm not going to talk about any of them. (laughs) (laughs) So the Buddha talked about three ways in which we cling to a sense of self. One of those is taking something as mine, like my leg, mine, my husband, my job, my house, taking something as mine, Taking something as myself, I am a poet. This is me. I'm a poet. Taking something as my essential soul or core me. Ah, yes, this is my nature. My basic nature is whatever it is. Those three ways of clinging are forms of craving. They're forms of ways that we are not accepting life as it is in this moment. It is about wanting things to be different than they are. All these three forms. Taking something as mine, something as myself, something as my core, my soul. All of these, clinging to these, are sources of suffering. Anatta, not self, is letting go of these things. Letting go of these things. So many years ago, Kamala Masters, who is a lovely Vipassana teacher, told me a story about her teacher named Munindra. And um, Munindra was always trying to talk to her about not taking things as self. So she decided she wanted to take him to some uh, Buddhist site, and she was taking him on the train. And he was quite elderly at the time. So they went to get on the train. This was in India. And she had kind of forgotten about trains in India. That they don't run on time. That they're often very crowded. That things aren't what you expect. And so as the trip wore on, she had neglected to bring food. So she would say to him, are you hungry? And he'd say, hunger is here, but I am not hungry. And then she'd say, oh, it's so hot, it's so hot here, are you hot? And he'd say, heat is here, but I'm not heat. And she'd say, oh, you must be tired, are you tired? And he said, tiredness is here, but I'm not tired. Now when, when she told me this story, 
I thought, well, that's kind of silly. But that story has stuck with me like no stories have because I've practiced it. And I'll hear myself saying, I am so tired. Now, when I say I am tired, what happens is my body slumps and I take a deep breath and I start thinking about how I'm not going to be able to take the next step. In contrast, when I say tiredness is here, but I'm not tired, I recognize that there's a lower energy and I need to take into account that there's a lower energy. But I don't physically fall into that slump. I say, ah, yeah, got to be careful, I'm tired. It's a totally different approach to the moment. And it's creating different conditions for the next moment. If I don't fall into a belief that I am that, I'm less likely to go there. I'm not preconditioning myself for that. It's been especially useful for me with anger. When I'll say, I am so angry. And then I'll say, anger is definitely here, but I'm not anger. And just that amount of space stops the lockstep. And I realize to stay angry, I've got to tell this story. I've got to justify this view. I've got to keep, I've got to keep it up. I've got to put energy into that. And that building up of that energy is building up energy. And I'm getting a real anger going here. Whereas if I just say anger is here, I can see the anger. I don't have to become the anger. I don't have to become the anger. Anger is something I have worked with a really long time because it doesn't... I mean, if anger's here, anger's here. <laughs> And all I can do is try not to feed it. Try not to feed it. Try not to justify it. Try not to become that thing. The opposite of letting go is owning. Mine. Mine, 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 mine. This is mine. It's my anger. I'm going to brush it off. And it doesn't have to be a negative emotion. The same thing is true. Take compassion. This is my compassion. My compassion. (sighs) And I start becoming something that isn't real in the moment. This is mine. And then when it changes, because of course, impermanence. Impermanence means change. Then I'm not willing to accept it. And I start doing really foolish things, trying to be compassionate. And I'm no longer compassionate because I'm so busy efforting, trying to make something happen, that I've changed the energy of the giving that was part of compassion. I've changed it by trying to hold on to it and call it mine. Mine. Another way that we do that is by comparing, comparing with another. I am more compassionate than you are. I am less compassionate than you are. Has nothing to do with compassion. It has to do with selfing. Creating a self. Compassion is just a movement of the heart. 
my compassion becomes a movement of the heart that's connected to it being a certain way as opposed to just arising out of whatever is happening. So, if I'm going to be a good Buddhist, I have to do everything right. What a waste of time that is. What a waste of time. It isn't righteousness. We don't, confer, we don't confuse ethical living with being a certain way. Ethical living is arising in this moment to have right speech, right action. It isn't about being a particular person or being a particular way. Can you see that? This is about, in order to see this, we have to see the process that is undergoing our experience. We are undergoing in our experience. We have to see what the pieces of the experience are so that we don't make them into something concrete (laughs) and unchanging and full of suffering. And full of suffering. So try that. Try, try the question, who am I? Am I my age? Am I my feelings? Am I my job? Am I my body? All of this is not self-abnegation. It isn't denying that there's a person sitting here a person who has a certain amount of confidence and faith in the next moment, I don't have to say I don't exist in order to be free of selfing, of creating a self. There's, there's, there's a being here. I just don't have to say this is what the being is. This is how the being must be. This is how the being should be. That's the part I don't need to do. So, so one, of the, one of the places that I used to get caught is in thinking of my consciousness, consciousness as me. What I was conscious of was me. Consciousness. I don't know what it is, but it's pretty amazing. I can tell you recently I lost it. (laughs) And it was so much more pleasant to be aware of what was going on than... It wasn't unpleasant, it just wasn't there. (laughs) It just wasn't there. There are many things that were not there that are now. So how can we be the same as we were before? It's not possible. It's amazing how the heart locks on to things and says, this. But the heart is really free when it says this and lets it open. When you are open to whatever is happening 
and seeing it as this is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. So I'm going to end with a little quote from Rumi. If you could leave your selfishness, you would see how you've been torturing your soul. We are born and live inside black water in a well. How could we know what an open field of sunlight is? Don't insist on going where you think you want to go. Ask the way to the spring. If you could leave your selfishness, you would see how you've been torturing your soul. We are born and live inside black water in a well. How could we know what an open field of sunlight is? Don't insist on going where you think you want to go. Ask the way to the spring. May you all be different. Thank you. So, questions. Rude noises. (laughs) Mick. You're very welcome. I've had some wonderful teachers. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, uh, when I first heard about not-self, I thought it was something I had to learn like an idea, a belief, a philosophy. And it is in understanding that not-self is a process and that it is something that is always unfolding that gave me free of this is something I have to believe in. It became part of experience. It's a process. Not-self is recognizing this is not me. This is arising now under these conditions. This is very exciting to me. Really exciting. I, I liked your use of selfing to explain the process of the process of creating self as selfing. Yeah, that's definitely borrowed. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it's probably a very uh, a Buddhist habit. This call, referring to something as selfing, but it is it is indicative of that process that's arising that when we say selfing um, that is an, it is an act it's a mental formation this creation of self and it's not who we need to be yes you know we're not using the microphones here and so I'm going to try to just repeat your Yeah, please. When you were um, talking about uh, I am angry or anger is present, it occurred to me that there's a, maybe it's in between, I feel angry seems different from either of those. And 
when I recognize that I feel angry or I feel compassionate, that's a good thing. I mean, it's, it, it feels like a good thing. It feels like it frees me compared to I am angry. Um, do you have any comments on that distinction? Yes, so, um, so it is different than saying I am angry because it's less identifying with. And what you're describing, the I feel angry part, is describing an emotion. And you'll notice when, when I talked about the five aggregates, emotions weren't one of them. The feeling is I like or don't like or neutral is not an emotion, right? But an emotion is actually uh, an illustration of a combination of those aggregates. And it involves feeling, which the, the, the other kind of feeling, the Vedana feeling of I like or dislike. So when you're saying I feel angry, you may like it or dislike it, depending on your relationship to that energy. So there is a feeling at present. There is a perception, a naming, it's anger. So there's perception present. There's awareness present, because you're aware of that. So at least those three things are are present. There may also be a physical aspect to that, I'm feeling angry because it's a churning in your stomach or some physical aspect. All of those three ways of experience are present there. The fact that you're aware of that or the extent to which you're aware of that combinations of ways of experience removes you just a tad from identifying with the anger. Okay, so the, by saying, I'm feeling angry, you're still caught in the energy of the angry anger, but you're not naming it as me. So it is a different, a different uh, degree of grasping. Does that make sense? Yes, one follow-up. Uh-huh. So if, uh, if anger is present, yes. where is it present? Anger is in those things that we just described. It is only in those things that we just described. Awareness, feeling, perception, that is anger. It is a process. It's not a thing. Anger is not a thing. Thank you. Yes, next to you. Well, I really enjoyed today. It was you cleared up a, a mystery for me in life about this uh, self thing. So that's been wonderful. But I wanted to comment. When I was in my teens, I lost consciousness one time, and it was a most curious experience that I can, you know, bring up right away again because it was such an unusual an interesting experience um, to lose consciousness to absolute control of your body and then you don't know what happened and you wake up and you don't know where you've been, you don't know what you've done, anything. And I, how I reconciled that experience was I, I, I felt that that must be what death is like, is when you lose consciousness, it's over. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that since you recently lost consciousness. Uh, well, of course, I can't say that my experience was the same as your experience. They were separate experiences. But also, um, 
There may be some parallels with death, but the fact that you're here means you didn't die. So it was not death. So we sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a lot of controversy over what constitutes death. There's something called brain death, which is different than losing consciousness, by the way. Brain death has to do with shutdown of neurological functions, which is not the same thing as losing consciousness. So, it is, so the definition of death is different than just losing consciousness. So I want to be really clear about that distinction. But there is an extinction, an extinction idea about losing consciousness. But it is ideation. I'm not sure if that makes any sense to you. So during the, uh, during the time that I was out, I have no idea what was going on. Now, when I'm sleeping, I don't always know what's going on either. I have dreams and, you know... Sometimes I'm aware of tossing and turning and sometimes I'm not, depending on how deep I am in dreaming. I think what makes a difference is that there's a conscious decision to go to sleep or there's a, you know, there's a kind of falling into that, that repose. Whereas this losing consciousness is just, it's sudden. It's very sudden and it is uh, irretrievable. I have no memory. Probably because I didn't lay any down. It's just a gone period of time. I don't even know how long it was. I was alone. I don't know how long I was out. 30 seconds? 30 minutes? I don't have a clue. Probably not 30 minutes, or there might have been more damage, but, you know, there you are. So, uh, so I don't know what the experience was for you. But it is useful. It is always useful to think about death and recognize that death is just that. It isn't different than death. And, and what I mean by that is that we don't have to apply meaning to it. You do not have to assign meaning to having lost consciousness. It doesn't mean anything. It just means you lost consciousness. Yeah. One more over here. So I'm, st- I'm still finding that the self, the not-self, Thing mysterious, I mean, yeah. and actually, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come to this series mm-hmm. to explore it more. So um, I can imagine going to a job interview, and they say, "Tell me about yourself." Uh-huh. And you say, "Well, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this." Okay, you're hired. <laughs> I like that attitude in you. Yeah. So, and then there's also the thing about growing up. It seems like I don't know. I'm trying to remember an old psychology class where they talk about finding your identity or finding as a child and self. So there's all these things that are coming up in my mind about it. And it almost seems, today I've sort of come come up with a little bit different perspective on it, that, which I kind of had before, but it seems like the only way to know the not-self consciousness for, or, the not, or to understand not-self better is to really have a much better idea of yourself. If you understand yourself, and then you can, or you think you understand it, and then maybe seeing that maybe that isn't really the way it is all the time. But, it's, but I just, it's, it seems like it needs to be approached in a backward or some different way because 
to me, it seems like you really need to understand yourself first before you can understand not self. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Both things are necessary. There's a, I was looking over uh, A Path with Heart, which is a book by uh, uh, Jack Cornfield, A Path with Heart. And he takes, he addresses that very issue, that, it, that there is both a need for a strong sense of self and a need for understanding not-self in an individual who is whole and mature. So if we are... And, and he makes the point it doesn't matter which comes first, but he thinks it's easier if you have a sense of self uh, because the one thing we want to avoid, and I only referred to it briefly at the end, is this self-abnegation. It isn't a denial of self. In order to function in the world we have to develop certain social and mental competencies, which we call a sense of self. This, this, this person that moves through the world has to have a, a sense of being whole and uh, have some confidence in themselves. And, and that process is also important. So I want to make a distinction between the psychological development of self and the spiritual idea of not-self, which is not limiting oneself to being a certain way based on one's experience. So it's more a question of you are not your experience, although your experience has a lot to do with who you are. So it doesn't answer the question directly, but it invites you to hold both pieces in balance. To the extent that you say, uh, let's take your job interview idea. So if I'm going to go in and be interviewed for a job, I have to be able to say, I'm good at this, and this is what I can do for you, and this characteristic of mine is going to be useful to you. I may have other characteristics. like So let's say, I'm a good resource manager, I may also have uh, a tendency to uh, be really tight with resources. You know, I'm a good resource manager because I'm this way. To the extent that I say because I'm this way, I am limiting my abilities as a resource manager. Okay, so I might be a good manager because I can look over things and arrange them in a certain way. But closely held ideas about what that should look like come into the, the more into that character of not self. This could be true under these conditions. This could be true. Okay. So I know it doesn't answer the question directly. It is a constant search, and it's part of the process. So the useful part about not self is seeing it as a process and not a thing. The self that you present to a prospective employer as a competent, developed individual is, is a necessary way of being in the world, but you yourself should not be limited by that. Okay? It's a process. <laughs> Thank you all. We need to leave. See you next week.